The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. One of the things I like to do during any kind of exercise routine is listen to podcasts. I don't know how many of you do that. But there's one podcast uh, in particular that's on leadership, and, and it's called Leader, uh, Five Questions or something like that. And uh, the moderator always asks the guest one question in particular that I find fascinating, and that is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? If you could go back and talk to yourself at age 20, what would you say? And I always am fascinated by the answers because they indicate, of course, what they think is really important now versus what they thought was important at age 20. And I thought if I were to answer that question for myself, one thing I would say to Lars Anderson at age 20 is this. You don't understand the Lord's Supper. You don't understand what it means You don't understand its connection to the gospel. You don't understand its beauty and significance biblically. You don't understand its central importance to the local church. And you don't understand how important the rhythm of its practice is to your life personally. Lars, you need a deeper understanding and love for the Lord's Supper because the time will come when it will regularly be the highlight of your week, something the Lord uses mightily to sustain you in your faith. Last week, Nate walked us through the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper. And when the elders planned this, this sermon series out, we unanimously thought we should do an additional sermon on this subject because of its importance. So with Nate expositing the text last week, what we're going to do today is zoom out from 1 Corinthians 11 and consider some key questions about the Lord's Supper to remind us, or in some cases, educate us on what the Lord's Supper is and why it's so central to the life of the church in general and to Orchard Bible Church in particular, and why it is vital to your own spiritual life. Life. So you'll see an outline with several questions. Uh, unfortunately, the last question, which is an important one, got chopped off in the printing. So when we get to question number seven, I'll explain what that is. But we'll hit these one by one. So first, number one, what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? Other names you may have heard for this event, the Lord's Table, Communion, Remembrance, or the Eucharist. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus himself as something his people would do when we gather together. When he was with his disciples at his last supper before his death, they ate bread and drank wine together at his instruction, and he defined what they were doing as something to be repeated in his absence until he comes again in his second advent. In verse 25, we see the supper is the sign of the new covenant. This is really important. Found back in the Old Testament places like Jeremiah 31 where God promises the forgiveness of sins and a personal knowledge or relationship with the Lord that all of God's people would have. It also says that God would put his law within the hearts of his people instead of something to obey externally. It will be internal so that they will want to obey God. We know from Ezekiel 36 
that this is accomplished by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, another key aspect of the new covenant promise, as someone comes to faith in Jesus. So the new covenant was accomplished and ratified through the death and resurrection of Christ. And as you enter into this covenant with God by repenting of your sin, trusting in his Messiah, Savior, Jesus, when and what was accomplished in his death and resurrection in your place, this is something that's offered to anyone without exception. And it's offered to you today. You can know the Lord, Jeremiah says. You can have the God, the Holy Spirit, reside within you. Your sin's forgiven. Ezekiel talks about the Holy Spirit. So that you'll be a new creation and that you'll desire to obey him all your days. Now, water baptism was given by the Lord as a sign of entering this covenant and this relationship with God through Jesus. The Lord's Supper is the sign of continuing in that covenant and relationship. Unlike water baptism, which is done once, symbolizing your entrance into the covenant, participation in the Lord's Supper is something you do repeatedly then throughout your Christian life as a sign of continued fellowship with him. So the Lord's Supper is something we do as an act of obedience with the gathered congregation. We're to look back and remember the means of our salvation as central. Then to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a, there's also a looking forward that we do in the Supper as well. We'll talk about this more later. But there's a focus on the future coming of Jesus as well. When our salvation is consummated in the new creation. So past and future, but there's also an important aspect of the supper that, that's in the present, in the now. Our participation in the new covenant requires action in the present. As Nate articulated last week, personal examination is necessary, isn't it? Tom Schreiner says this, the Lord's Supper provides a time for believers to examine their own personal relationship with God as well as their relationship with other believers while experiencing communion with the exalted Christ. So there's, there's a unity aspect as well. We'll talk more about this later, but participating in the new covenant not only means you receive all the blessings in Christ, but you also belong to him. Remember, you were purchased by his blood. You owe life and obedience to him. So there's a confession of sin and repentance a renewal of your commitment to him and all that happens during uh, the supper as well. And then finally, in terms of this present aspect of the supper, as I mentioned, there's a unity dimension. This has been obscured, unfortunately, by our hyper-individualistic society. But this is where the word communion finds its greater meaning. We commune with Christ and also with one another. Paul emphasizes one bread, One body. We take it together as a church in unity. In fact, this is so fundamental to the supper that Paul says in verse 20, it was not the Lord's Supper the Corinthians were were eating because there were factions. They were divided. They weren't together in unity. They weren't waiting for one another. So we cannot separate the Lord's Supper from the fellowship in the body. You cannot do it by yourself. That's not the Lord's Supper. It finds its manifestation in the unified corporate assembly of believers. The Supper binds us vertically to Christ 
and also binds us horizontally with each other in our church family in unity. That's what the, the Lord's Supper is. Now, what about the next question, number two? Is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Now, of course, Christ is always present in the sense, a divine sense, everywhere. But this question gets to a special presence in or among the bread and the cup as is claimed by some faith traditions. First, we can say with confidence, I think, he is not physically present. We need to reject the official view of the of Roman Catholicism, where the bread and the cup do not become the actual body and blood of Christ in some mystical sense. Uh, this view of transubstantiation, as it's called, was not the view of the church until the Middle Ages, and then for about 300 years before the Reformation. When Jesus said, this is my body, no one reached across the table to start eating his forearm, as Mark Dever said. Jesus also said, I'm the door, <clears throat> and other things that were clearly Symbolic. So Jesus is not being re-sacrificed over and over in the supper. No. His body is symbolized in the elements, and we look back to that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Nevertheless, many of the Reformers did hold, as did the early church fathers, to a spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. So what should we think of that? We tend to think of the Lord's Supper purely as a memorial Service, But is it more than that? Is Christ, through the Holy Spirit, doing something unique in that service? We certainly don't want to fall into the trap of overreacting to the false doctrine of the physical presence that we neglect any kind of special communion or presence. Millard Erickson, a Baptist theologian, has quipped that sometimes Baptists are eager to acknowledge the presence of Christ everywhere except in the Lord's Supper. So Paul says in, in chapter 10, verse 16, that we participate in the body of Christ. Now, we need to be careful and make very clear distinctions, but I think it's helpful and I think it's biblical to think about Christ being spiritually present in a communion special way during the supper. We might say he's present in this special way only if the supper is connected with the truth of the gospel and genuine faith of the participant. Christ is not present in the elements themselves in some mystical way. There are many so-called churches today that have abandoned the gospel entirely and yet still perform some kind of Eucharist or Lord's table. If there's no gospel truth, no genuine faith connected to those taking the supper, Christ is certainly not present in any special way. However, when taken properly among believers in faith and unity in the church as it was designed, along the side the teaching of the gospel, there's a special fellowship between Christ and believers in communion who take the supper by faith. So his spiritual presence is not divorced from faith. This is all dependent on the Holy Spirit and an understanding of the truth of the gospel. Apart from the truth of the word, the gospel signs are useless and senseless. The same goes for baptism, right? If baptism is per water baptism is performed apart from genuine faith, it's ultimately meaningless. The signs were never meant to have power in and of themselves, only joined with the word and understanding through faith. That's why 
It's so important that the preaching of the word and the Lord's Supper go together as they did in the early church, like Acts chapter 2. They came together and devoted themselves to what? The breaking of bread, communion, fellowship, and prayer, but also the apostles' doctrine. Without biblical doctrine about the Lord's Supper, the supper itself is meaningless. Now, before the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, the practice of the Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, was in many cases worthless because the gospel was not being preached. The Reformation brought back the preaching of the word which recaptured the truth of the gospel and therefore gave the Lord's Supper meaning again, the significance that Jesus proclaimed it to have. Because again, it was connected with his saving death and resurrection. There was life again in the Lord's Supper because of the Holy Spirit. Only in that context, in the accurate preaching of the gospel, genuine faith of those of us worshiping, might it be said that Christ is present in some special way of sweet communion with us. Okay, question number three. How does the Lord's Supper fit into the Bible's big story? Don Carson speaks of a trajectory or thread that we can trace back to the Exodus. And I think it's so helpful for many biblical truths if you can, if you can understand the big picture. At, at the time of the Exodus, God delivered his people through the great and terrible event of the Passover. If you're familiar with the, the story, you'll remember that the people of God who feared him slaughtered the sacrificial lamb, sprinkled the blood as instructed of that lamb on the door structures of their home, and, and, and in their home gathered would eat that lamb together. And the angel of death passed over that house, hence Passover, and all the firstborn in those obedient families were spared. Firstborn sons, firstborn of the animals did not die. They were all marked for death, but because of the blood of the lamb, they were passed over. They were saved. As a result of that salvation, or release from judgment, God instituted the annual celebration of the Passover. So every year, the Jews would, would slaughter a lamb and eat it. As it was a way of looking back and remembering how God judged Egypt on that night, but provided salvation for them as, and the means to escape. The great exodus out of Egypt. They escaped the slavery and oppression of evil as God parted the sea and they walked through on dry ground. This was all to be remembered at the Passover festival. So the first year, they celebrated the Passover. They looked back at how God saved them from judgment by the blood of the Lamb. The second year, they celebrated the Passover, looking back and remembering. The third year, they looked back. The 25th year, they look back. The 100th year, they look back. The 248th year, they look back. And the years keep going and they continue to look back. Thoughtful Israelites would know that God didn't just deliver them in that instance in Egypt, but subsequent times as well. They were delivered through the horrible circumstances in the desert. They were delivered from nations who attacked. And even though the first generation passed away, People did get into the promised land under Joshua. Then hundreds of years go by. And because of sin and idolatry, they're taken into exile. But then God delivers them out of exile as well. And they're still looking back during Passover season to the deliverance from Egypt. But see many other instances of God's deliverance. Time and time again, God delivers us. So as Carson notes, 
thoughtful Israelites must ask the question, what's the ultimate deliverance? Who finally deals with our sin? Way back then in Egypt, the blood of the Passover lamb meant that our sin was passed over at that time. But God's constantly passing over our sin. So many times, yet we continue to sin. Will we ever be delivered from sin? So we see the Apostle Paul in this very letter in chapter 5 drawing the connection that this Passover mandated by God to be repeated every year is not only looking back, but looking forward and anticipating an ultimate deliverance. And remember, as he writes back in chapter 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. It wasn't random that Jesus died on Passover weekend. And the very first Lord's Supper was connected, wasn't it, with the Jewish Passover. The Passover has been changed or altered to something greater. Now Christians can look back at Isaiah, like we did last week in our Lord's Supper. Jesus was the lamb that was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The peace of God was established by him. By his wounds we've been healed. And like God commanded the Israelites to repeat and remember the Passover, Jesus likewise says, do this in remembrance of me. But he also says, do this until I come. Because the Lord's Supper not only looks back, it looks forward to the ultimate deliverance when Jesus comes again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So I hope you can see the significance of the Lord's Supper in this grand story arc of the Bible. Now, with the rest of these questions in your outline, they're a bit more practical. They have to do with the actual practice of the Lord's Supper today. So the first of these questions is number four. When and where should we have the Lord's Supper? In verse 18, Paul gives this instruction on the Lord's Supper in the context of when you come together as a church. In 1017, he says, there is one bread and we all partake of the one bread. Paul's instruction about discerning the body here in verse 29 doesn't make sense outside the corporate gathering of the church. In fact, every time the Lord's Supper is mentioned in the New Testament, it assumes the gathered community of believers in the assembly. In the book of Acts, it is clear that the churches broke bread together on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, when, we, when they met together for worship. Schreiner says this, this doesn't necessarily mean the Lord's Supper was the only purpose of their gathering, but it certainly is one prominent purpose and the one emphasized in Acts. The centrality of communion to the weekly gathering is stated casually, without explanation or defense, suggesting this practice was common among those Luke expected to read his account. These early Christians met weekly to celebrate the Lord's Supper, end quote. Now, many churches today take the Lord's Supper less frequently. Usually the argument is that if, it's, if, if it is observed every week, it, it may lose its meaning. But that concern could be applied to anything we do in our weekly worship. I could say I don't want singing or preaching to lose its meaning, so let's only sing every other week or, or preach once a month. I grew up in a church, praise God, that preached the gospel but we only had the Lord's Supper every three months, and I didn't sense that it was more special as a result. In fact, I sensed it was not special. 
And it, I was confused, actually, by what, what it even meant. I think Schreiner is right on when he says this. If the meaning is lost, the problem may well be with our hearts rather than with the ordinance itself. Now, in terms of where, Paul emphasizes again, one body, one bread. Five times, Paul says, when you all come together. So it's clear, there's a clear tie to the gathered assembly of believers here for the supper. Wait for one another, he says. This shared meal is communion with each other and with the Lord. So, to summarize the when and where. The New Testament teaches we should take the Lord's Supper with our local family of believers when we all meet together for weekly worship. That's what's modeled in the New Testament. There's something about the corporate gathering of the church that ties to the meaning of the supper. One body, one bread. Corporate worship in the local church is where it finds its significance. The concept of communion falls apart when we're not sharing the family meal. At the Anderson's household, when we have a family dinner together in our home, which we try to do as many nights as we can, it's a special time uh, where we all come together and eat the family dinner. Now, sometimes we cannot all be there. Sometimes, perhaps, I have to work late, or one of the kids has basketball practice or some kind of activity, and it's impossible for them to be there. They like to be there, but they can't be there. So maybe we save some food for that person, and they can eat it later, and that's personally beneficial to them. But we wouldn't say that person was joining the family dinner because they're not eating with the family. There's no family communion. It's not insulting to them to say they couldn't be at the family dinner. It's just the reality that the family dinner is a real thing that doesn't exist apart from being at the family dinner, communing with one another. I think in a similar way, someone could take the bread and the cup if that helps them benefit personally, reflecting on the Lord's death, but it's not really the Lord's Supper, unless it's done in communion with the church family, taking the supper together. Now, in practice, some of these exceptions are debated and are issues of conscience. In other words, Christians can, can disagree on these things. It's not a matter of sin. For instance, uh, when we have shut-ins who are unable to be with their church family, they would love to be here, but they can't be here. Historically, if, if they've requested, someone takes the elements to them. Someone goes as sort of a proxy for the rest of the church to join them in communion. I'm not sure it's taking communion to them, though, because you can't take the gathered church somewhere apart from where the real thing is, any more than we can change what the family dinner means. There are times for every one of us, as very recently, when we cannot be here, even if we wanted to. During the COVID lockdown, for instance, again, this is a matter of conscience. Personally, I did not do a Lord's Supper during that period. Not because I didn't want to, believe me. But given what I see in the New Testament, the supper is something we do as a church gathered all together. Wait for one another. One bread. Discern the body. That's what communion is. Now, this is really important so you don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean I can't remember the death of Christ when we're not meeting together. If we're unable to be at communion, we should still remember his death, right? In fact, this is something we should always be doing, not just weekly, but daily, right? So when we're not able to meet with our church family, we can and should remember the work of Christ and worship him. Pray, confess, repent, praise God. 
Give thanks for his salvation. But the Lord's Supper, it seems from the New Testament, is not something given to individuals, but for the church as a shared meal together with the gathered family taken in communion and unity with the Lord and with each other. And when we're not able to be here, we can fast, which makes us long to be reunited with our church family, doesn't it? And we lament when we cannot be together. And there's a healthy thing the Lord does in that season as well. So again, good Christians can disagree on these exceptions. But I hope the thrust of the New Testament helps you understand the design for the when and the where. Now what about the logistics in how we do the Lord's Supper? This is number five in your outline. How should it be done? This is closely tied to the question of when and where. But we should remember that like baptism, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. We do not call it a sacrament as some traditions do because that word has the the connotation that God's grace is coming through the elements independent of the worshiper. So we prefer to use the word ordinance because it is given as a command, not to individuals so much as to the church. So our answers to these questions matter. If we've been commanded to have the Lord's Supper, which we have, we should do our best to follow the model that we see instructed. We see in this chapter and in other places, it is a shared meal. So in other scriptures, we we have what's referred to as the love feast, which was probably a shared meal that culminated or ended in the Lord's Supper. Some churches today, people go forward to receive the bread and the cup from someone giving it out. That has the connotation a little bit more like an altar um, that you're going up to and less like the shared meal concept. That's why at Orchard we pass the bread and the cup around to everyone as more indicative of being at the Lord's table together, sharing a meal together. Now in verse 33 he says, when you come, when you, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now in some churches everyone literally waits to take it at the same time. And that's what we've been doing in our outdoor service for logistical reasons. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think the waiting for one another in this context means not so much that the elements enter everyone's mouth simultaneously, but rather that having the supper together, one event, one meal, one place as a family. So this again gets at, at the unity highlighted in the supper. Now what about bread and wine? We use grape juice. Uh, We use the bread loaf, illustrating the unity. We break it. We also have crackers. Uh, We don't use wine for a number of reasons, but I think Schreiner is right when he says, the scriptures make no point of of concerning the purity of the liquid used. The, The biblical emphasis does not fall on fermentation or lack thereof. So we use the fruit of the grape to symbolize the blood of Christ. Now, because we don't want to confuse people, we don't call it wine. We generally call it the cup. So we're not exactly replicating the original, but we aim for as much continuity as we can in how we do it. As Mark Dever says, if you're not going to do the Lord's Supper in an upper room with 12 Jewish friends, then you're never going to be able to do it exactly as it was done in the original. So question number six, who is it for? Who is it for? It's very clear uh, in the New Testament that the Lord's Supper is for believers, uh, those who have personally experienced the benefits of what we've described in this new covenant, namely the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by trusting in the person and work of Christ. Now, 
Those who are members of this new covenant then are invited to the table to remember the cross, commune with Christ and other believers in the assembly. Nate covered this last week, but Paul calls the Corinthians to examine themselves. Uh, The warning seems to apply, this is debated, seems to apply to those who are not repentant, self-centered, and ignoring other members of the body. I think these are unbelievers. But if you're coming to the table convicted of sin, with a spirit of repentance before the Lord, the table's for you, the table's for me. Now, there are a number of additional questions that surface at this point, so let's look into some of these. Should only members of that church participate? Uh, Some of these things may seem foreign to us, but these things were big deals throughout church history. Uh, In one sense, that actually seems to fit best with this one loaf, one bread concept, one body concept we see in the New Testament. Members that are in good standing, of course, um, not under church discipline. The word excommunication, I've heard that word, is derived from that word communion. Someone who has tragically remained unrepentant Uh, despite all the stages of church discipline, is to be considered, it says in Matthew 18, as an unbeliever, no longer participating then in the Lord's Supper. This is likely what Paul meant back in chapter 5 when he said, do not even eat with such a person. No longer share the covenant meal. No longer in communion, excommunicated. That's what that means. But what about other believers who are not necessarily members or believers who are visiting from other churches. This again has been debated throughout church history. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards uh, ultimately parted ways with his church over this very issue, how open the table should be. Fencing the table, as it is called. Protecting the table and the people from who and who should not participate. Some of you are familiar, no doubt, with the Plymouth Brethren practice, much more common in years past, where you would need to present a letter from, an, from the other, a visiting church. Someone would bring a letter from their leadership of their local assembly demonstrating they were in fact members there in good standing, not under church discipline. That gets to the seriousness. I appreciate the seriousness of protecting the table from, for those from whom it is not meant. Paul's words in 10 and 11 are serious on this matter. Now at Orchard, we, part- we practice what's called an open communion. Just meaning we invite any believer, regardless if you're, a, if you're a member or a regular attender or a visitor, we invite you, if you're a believer, to, uh, to take the Lord's Supper with us. But we try to make it as clear as we can um, when we pass the elements who the supper is for uh, so that no one is taking it in an unworthy manner. Now, is the supper only for baptized believers? Uh, Here's another matter of conscience, something that Christians can disagree about, including Christians who are elders at Orchard. (laughs) We even disagree on some of these things. Now, we agree, of course, the pastors agree certainly on the most important things, which I'll get to. But in particular, unbaptized children taking communion is something we see as a matter of conscience for the parents uh, to decide. Um, I'll do my best to explain sort of both positions and and then emphasize again what we agree about since Paul's top two concerns are that, ta- are that those taking the Lord's Supper are true believers, verse 19, and taking communion in a worthy manner with self-reflection and repentance, verse 28, some hold the view that if a child is old enough to have shown real evidence of salvation and is mature enough to celebrate this memorial in a worthy manner, there is no reason to keep him or her from participating in this weekly blessing. 
For example, Craig Blomberg urges that in churches that limit communion to those who have been baptized or confirmed, stress should be shifted instead to limiting it to those who have truly accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. So that's one view. The other view is the one I hold personally, and that's that the Lord suffers for baptized believers. There's an assumption, it seems, throughout the New Testament that believers are baptized. There's no pattern in Scripture for unbaptized believers taking the Lord's Supper. As Jameson explains, baptism is our inaugurating ceremony into the church, and the Lord's Supper is our ongoing ceremony. One is the doorway and the other a regular family meal. So you're first adopted into the family, then you enjoy the family meal regularly. For example, Tom Schreiner argues if we understand baptism correctly, that is the public profession of faith, then it makes sense for baptism to precede participating in communion. Someone ought not to come to the table unless he is a recognized believer, end quote. That public recognition, of course, comes in baptism. Now, I understand the desire parents have to want their children to feel a part of the church, okay? But personally, I think it's important for kids to learn they're not automatically part of the church. It's an individual calling to follow Jesus and need to be obedient to, independent of their parents' faith. They're not automatically a part of it. Now, here's where all the elders agree. This is... uh, Taking communion is, is something we need to understand, that, that people need to understand and believe the gospel in order to take communion. Uh, they need to understand how the Lord's Supper represents the gospel. We need to, they need to be engaged in the service and understand what's happening, what's being said. They, want, they need to want it deeply. They need to be mature enough in their faith to be worshiping and not distracted as almost every child is, especially those under middle school age. For instance... It should definitely not be the case that they're stopping, they're stopping their coloring just enough to take the elements. That should not be the way it works. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean kids cannot benefit from the service, even if they're not taking communion. Of course they can. We want to help you. The elders want to help you lead your families well in this. So parents, uh, please talk to any of the elders about this. We'd be happy to discuss it with you. This brings us to our last question, which again, I apologize, is not in your outline. Um, And there are three sub-points, unfortunately, as well, which I'll get to. How do we participate? Okay, Um, I just have three quick points, and they're all perspectives, all of which are important to a proper participation in and benefit from the Lord's Supper. And you can note that these perspectives that I'll get to are past, present, and future. So first, letter A, the past, remembering the cross. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. As amazing as the incarnation and virgin birth were, Jesus did not tell us to remember his birth every time we meet together. He did not tell us to commemorate the Sermon on the Mount or his example. As important and worthy of our study as those things are, He told us to remember his death because that was central. That was central to his mission and to our salvation. Consider this. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians he was privileged to receive unspeakable visions and revelations directly from God. 
But of all the truths he was exposed to, isn't it interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered unto you of first importance. Of everything I could tell you, this is the most important thing. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. Therein lies our salvation, first importance. So remembering this entails somber reflection on these things. Examination of our hearts and confessing any sin for which he died, repenting. And then rejoicing in the forgiveness and cleansing secured in his once for all sacrifice, which results in thanksgiving, doesn't it? And praise. We remember our union with Christ and all the blessings therein. Adoption, regeneration. We've been born again. We remember our justification. The righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. So this is not just a mental recollection of an event. Thistleton notes that the Greek word here does not mean just calling to mind the mighty acts of God. But to, love what he says, but to assign them an active role in one's world. To engage in worship, trust, and obedience, a remembering that transforms attitudes and actions. End quote. This leads us to the, to the second perspective, the present. Renew our pledge and rejoice in communion. Renew our pledge and rejoice in communion. We have a role in the new covenant. We don't just remember the past. He purchased us, believer, with his blood. He owns us now. We are his. We now live for his good pleasure. We owe our life to him and we pledge obedience to him for the coming days, acknowledging that he's given us his spirit that we might obey. Through the Holy Spirit, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this obedient life is a shared life manifested in love for one another. We participate together in the body, chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. In our communion with Christ and one another in unity, we feed on him like like the, uh, in John 15. He's the source of our spiritual life. We're the branches and we focus on our connection to the vine, which results in love for one another. This is our pledge in the present and our communion in which we rejoice. And then finally, let us see the future. Refocus on his return. We do this, Paul says in verse 26, until he comes. Jesus says at the Last Supper, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As one scholar says, the supper orients our hearts and minds of believers to the return of Christ, the culmination of the kingdom of God. There is a hope, brothers and sisters, when we take the supper. As Mike Quinlan often has said at the table, We take it one more time, and we take it one less time. There's an anticipation in the supper, supper, especially in times of suffering. We long for his return. The repetition of the supper culminates in the future banquet, in the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that day of the Lord, the new creation, when he will set everything right. Our marriage to Jesus as his bride is already, but it's not yet. We are the bride of Christ, but we long for that wedding day. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the consummation of our union with Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, 
our king. When we take the elements now, we have a foretaste of the adoration on that day when every knee will bow. For now, Jesus is the sacrificial meal. But when he returns, brothers and sisters, he will join us at the table as one who eats and drinks with us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we have a great hope in the supper, brothers and sisters. Not a heaven is for real kind of hope or some kind of out-of-body experience not centered on Christ, but a sign embodied in the supper and a taste of what is to come. You know, we're not told a lot in the scriptures about what that day will be like, but we're told a lot more, aren't we, about who it will be with. So as we partake, let us ache for that final day when we will experience communion with Jesus like never before, when we finally see him face to face, Maranatha, Jesus the true king, the only hope for the world. When you taste that bread and cup, Each week, I hope you're struck by the flavor, not of baked dough or the sugars of the juice, but the flavor of victory in Jesus, a foretaste of his divine kingdom coming when everything will be made new. Brother or sister, if you do not do so regularly, I implore you to follow Jesus' command and participate with us in the Lord's Supper each Sunday. There's a reason Jesus commanded it. Your soul will be enriched and protected in ways you cannot imagine. And in time, you may, like many of us, find it to be the most blessed hour of your entire week. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we thank you for the supper. We thank you for what it represents, victory in Jesus. We look back with thanksgiving. We rejoice in the present, committing ourselves to you. And we look forward, Maranatha, when you come and rescue us finally, that we might be in communion with you forever and ever. Thank you so much. Please bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.